I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And this is episode number 404. And today we're back with our habitat-specific series in which we're getting an expert panel to dive deep into one kind of hunting terrain. And today that's open country. And our panel includes folks such as Andy May, Eddie Claypool, and Jared Scheffler. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And as I mentioned, we are back with this series that we kicked off last week in which we are diving into one specific kind of habitat and pulling in a group of people that have some great experience in those types of places and getting different ideas about how to approach it, comparing and contrasting these different perspectives and tactics for hunting the same kind of place, but in wildly different ways. As we did last time, I'm joined by my buddy Andy May, who who's a friend and one of the best whitetail bow hunters I know in the world, and and he as well as myself have been more and more interested in hunting in these kinds of open country habitats, whether that's Nebraska or Kansas, Oklahoma, parts of Iowa, even some open prairie kind of stuff in some of the further east states. You can find pockets like this. Um, but of course, anywhere around the edges of the Great Plains are, are a perfect example. There's a lot of great whitetail hunting in these types of areas, but it's different than your typical Midwest or Northeast or Southeast hunt where you've got mixtures of timber and, and fields and crops and whatnot. This is, this is a different world. This is an ocean of grass in some cases where trees might be quite rare, but deer, deer are there. And today we're talking to Eddie Claypool and Jared Scheffler about how to find those deer and how to kill them with a bow. And these two guys have done it consistently and to a, to an impressive degree, they're doing it in wildly different ways. I mean, totally different. You've got Eddie Claypool who approaches things in a little bit more standard approach with the, the tree stand and waiting in the right spots. While you have Jared who is on the ground chasing them down, getting in close and getting them killed with a longbow. Both of these guys have been on the podcast in the past, but it was quite a ways back, um, back in 2015 maybe. Um, I think you're 
likely familiar with the two guys, but let me give you a really quick introduction. Eddie Claypool has written for a number of outdoor magazines, including Peterson's Bowhunting, where he's still writing now today. He's a very experienced deer hunter, as well as a western big game hunter. Uh, he hunts and spends a lot of time in Oklahoma, Kansas, places like that. Um, you should go back and listen to that original episode I had with him back in 2016. It's really great. gives you a good high-level idea of, of who Eddie is and what he's all about. Now, Jared is the the founder and, and, and the host mostly of the Whitetail Adrenaline DVD series where he, him and his buddies go out and do some pretty crazy things. They chase these deer on the ground. They use decoys. They sneak up in close. Um, it's just a, a really interesting way to deer hunt. And as I mentioned already, he's got it nailed. So we're going to explore how these guys go about it. Andy and I are going to chime in with our experiences and our questions. And in short, it's, it's, it's cool. It's just got me. I just finished with this conversation. We just recorded the conversation and I'm still kind of riding high. I'm still, for lack of a better term, just jacked up and wanting to drive out to one of these places and, and try to find a deer in this kind of environment. It's, it's just a really cool thing and something that's worth doing at least once in your life if you haven't already. So Without any further ado, let's get into this conversation with Andy, Eddie, and Jared. I know you're going to enjoy it. And even if you don't hunt these kinds of places, I really do think that you can learn something that you'll be able to apply to your own neck of the woods. I'm even going to take some of this stuff and apply it to what I do in Michigan. Even though it's very different, there's some applicable things. And uh, with that, I'm just going to tune this one down and let's get into it. All right. With me on the line, we have got... One heck of a trio here to discuss open country hunting. We've got my right-hand man, Andy May, and then our two special guests, Jared Scheffler and Eddie Claypool. Um, since there's four of us on the line, we're not going to try to do the whole individual introduction. Uh, I'll have taken care of that already by now, but but suffice to say, thank you all for being here for this. Uh, it's going to be really interesting, I think, for the four of us to dive deep into one specific type of habitat. Um, that being this open country, it could be, you know, wide open grasslands in Kansas and might be scattered timber and fence rows in Oklahoma. It might be what I've seen up in the badlands of Montana or North Dakota. Me and Andy have hunted some stuff like this in Nebraska. There's a lot of places across the country where you have this relatively open environment. You might even be able to take some of the things we're going to talk about today and apply it to, northern ohio where it's just wide open ag fields with very little traditional timber cover um that all said there's there's a lot of different ways to approach deer hunting in places where you don't have your traditional big timber broken country et cetera, et cetera. and 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 that all brings me to you andy who i know the two of us have shared at least we've shared one hunt in this type of country i know it's something you are more and more interested in every year we talk and you're like yeah i gotta get back out there i gotta go out to wyoming or nebraska these different places because there's something special about hunting these locations of those big skies those wide open vistas uh and i know this is something you're you're curious about you want to scratch that itch more just like last week's conversation with hill country so i'm gonna i'm gonna kick it to you again because you seem to be a better host than I am sometimes. Where where do you want to start this conversation with Eddie and Jared? Well, man, first I just want to say how excited I am to have these two particular guys. Um, 
for two different reasons. Eddie, uh, you know, I've, I've been reading Eddie's articles for a long time. I've, um, I've admired him, uh, his, his longevity in, in bow hunting and his consistent success. I just think it's so cool and in just a vastly different style, I think, than Jared. And, and, and on, uh, you know, on the other hand with Jared, it's just like, we've, we've been able to actually watch this guy on videos, uh, do things that I'm not sure how, how many more bow hunters could actually pull off some of the stuff he does. So it's just, just really cool to have these two guys on. I'm, I'm super pumped about it. Um, and yeah, I, I love the open country. I just don't get to hunt it as much as I think our two guests have. Um, but I try to make it a point to get out there now, um, every year, at least for a couple of days, but I think we'll start, let's just start the conversation with just the basics. Like, like, what are you guys looking for? If, if I was a, a new guy and I'm going to head out West, you know, to Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, what is it you're looking for in a piece of ground, uh, that we would consider open country? Is there, is there something you're looking for on the map that sticks out or are you just kind of going there and, and hitting it, you know, as soon as your feet hit the ground, you're not even familiar with the area. I'm just kind of curious how you guys both approach that. So why don't we start with Eddie? Okay. Well, it goes without saying the first thing I'm looking for, of course, is access. And often that means public land. Uh, not all, not all of the states qualify there like Oklahoma. You can get out in Western Oklahoma and have a lot of open public land access, but Kansas is, you know, a little thinner on it. Nebraska's got tons of it and, etc. on up into the Dakotas and stuff, but access is my first priority. I don't worry about looking at the habitat. I don't care. Uh, it doesn't take a brainchild or a rocket scientist to figure out, you know, what you're going to do with it if you're a decent bow hunter. Uh, it may intimidate you at first, but uh, you got to realize that open country, whitetails love it. Uh, I've hunted the prairie of Kansas for ever since the first year Kansas even opened up to non-residents. And I've taken a lot of bucks out of places that nobody hardly ever even looks at when they're driving by. I mean, there might be three cottonwoods in a square mile. Um, so don't don't overlook the open spaces. The deer numbers are there. They're not as high as they are back in the traditional farm, you know, woodlot country. But, you know, if you're after a lot of, you know, quality time, that's the reason I go. I like the wide open spaces and the quiet and the no people. That's a ingredients of a good hunt for me so i i don't look for any specific habitat type you can i think i could jump into any of it whether it be high plains or prairie or you know uh desert even uh, i hunt the coos deer the white tails the little white tails in open country so my main goal is to find access where i can get it and if not public then you better go early, you better start working, you better start calling, and you better start researching to get your public land access. There's a lot of people that will let you hunt, you know, in, in the Midwestern uh, central states where the plains are. But, you know, it takes time to make sure you get on somebody and procure a relationship. So anyway, that's my main goal is to just make sure that I'm going to, you know, have a place to hunt when I get there. And if it's a state that's got a lot of public, it's a non-issue. If it's not, I research the public uh, that is available, and if not, I go take a vacation in the summer or come through there sometime and spend maybe even a week knocking on doors. 
you've got to, as a blue collar, do it yourself, or you've got to work hard on access one way or the other. Quick follow-up before we jump to Jared. Um, when you're not as worried about property habitat, it sounds like. So what I'm wondering then, right. bef- so that's beforehand, but when you show up to a piece, I'm curious, how right. do you determine if it's, you know, how do you determine the quality? How, what's your first quality check on a piece of property? Um, is it is it a quick walk? I'm, I'm just wondering because it seems like open country, the sign that's available, where you can find sign, all that seems a lot different to judge than traditional farm country where I can walk a property in five minutes, I'll find the big rubs or the scrapes or the highways of trails. And I can tell you, oh yeah, there's a bunch of deer here. It seems a little bit different in open country. So how do you judge, you know, is it worth spending time on this property or not? Well, I, I have a lot of time that most people don't. So I can go to a lot of these places and I spend a lot of time in the spring when I'm turkey hunting, I go to these places. I beat them down in the spring. I look for sheds. I look for all the old sign is right there in front of you during the spring when you're turkey hunting. So anyway, you know, it's hard to say other than going and putting your foot on it, you know, and you may have to, instead of walking a woodlot in Illinois, you know, you may be walking a 10 hour day. I mean, I've literally put in 10 hour days, walk 15, 18 miles in that country. And, you know, if you're looking for a really big buck, you're going to have to look for the big sign, either a four, I call it a four-finger track type scenario where you've got big mature animals or the big, big rubs. And it can be deceiving because a lot of places I go, like in Nebraska and stuff, I can see some rubs that will pop your eyes out and come to find out those deer that are doing that a lot of times aren't necessarily really large antlered deer. They're big mature bucks. It could be six, seven, eight-year-old bucks. They're bruisers. But a lot of times the genetics ain't there in certain places. I hunt in Nebraska. I don't hunt, you know, where they have the better quality deer in Nebraska. The most deer I hunt that may die of old age with a 130 or 40 inch rack on them. And so you just throw up some cameras. Uh, if you're in the fall, you know, get out there and throw some cameras up in the stringer cover. There's always, if you're a deer hunter, you can look on Google Earth, and if even if it's 10 miles of open country, there's going to be some stringer cover somewhere of some type. You know, along a creek, um, fence lines, you know, get some cameras up and uh, let them tell you what quality of deer you're messing with, you know. Yeah, I uh, I love that. I love that answer, Eddie, because it's, you know, tried and true. Um, you know, working hard, doing your pre-scouting, and... Yeah and finding those areas. And what I, what I love about this question is that I think Jared's, Jared's answer is going to be different in a lot of ways. So I'm really curious, Jared, how would you answer that same question? Well, I think one thing that Eddie uh, brought up is he doesn't really zone in on one particular type of habitat. And right away I reflected on that. That's one thing that I don't either. I focus on trying to to actually get a visual on a big buck. So if I haven't hunted an area or if I haven't been there in a year, which is usually the case, um, I'll start out that first day putting the miles on the vehicle, driving by a lot of different public land, and I'll get a pretty good idea by the time that day is done of where other hunters are hunting and just, just a general feel of what's going on. And usually... Uh, that's one thing I'm very blessed with is a good set of eyes. And so I spend a lot of time glassing, uh, some pieces I'm glassing two, three miles out sometimes, 
Um, and, and this year especially, I noticed uh, it seems like the pressure level on public has been going up quite a bit over the last couple, three years versus the way it's been the last, say, 10 years ago or five years ago even. And so that's a whole nother game in and, in and of itself is like I'm usually trying to, you know, keep a low key on pieces that uh, that I'm that I'm hunting. So uh, I'm setting up on some of these pieces two miles out sometimes just so other hunters don't see what I'm up to. And and uh, the point that uh, Eddie brought up about the habitat. Yeah, I don't look at aerials or do any of that prior to my hunt. I, I, I get to an area or a pocket. And then I just start putting the miles on the vehicle, driving by a lot of different public. And you don't always get a visual. We were on a hunt uh, this past fall. It was a new new pocket, new area. I noticed where there was a lot of different hunters hunting. And there was a, <clears throat> there was a, a big piece of public, about a square mile, I guess. And uh, it, it looks like crapland. It literally looked like crapland. We didn't leave. It's the back half of it. It was, you know, open country, no brush or anything like that. But the back half of it, you couldn't see from any road. There was two miles beyond that of private ground. So you couldn't glass it from anywhere. And it was uh, getting down to one of our last days. We only had a few days. And, and it was about 11, 1130 before we walked in there. And once you know it, uh, <laughs> that's where all the big mature deer were hanging out. Um, we got onto a big drop tine and and uh, should have got that deer, but just uh, things didn't quite come together. And we ended up extending the hunt. We were going to leave that day. And then the next morning, here was a, uh, <laughs> a, a mega eight on, the, on there, a different one. And um, that's a piece that all these other bow hunters, I was watching them. They were, they were hunting the creek bottoms. And, and it seems like on public land, that stuff that really pops out in an aerial that stuff seems to be what a lot of other hunters target. So I find a lot of times the mature, older class public land bucks, you know, aren't aren't usually in that stuff. Usually I'm finding them in the stuff, just like Eddie kind of said, you know, you, he mentioned you might have three trees out there and it might not look like much, you know, the little tiny, you know, uh, spots that other hunters are overlooking. At least if we're talking public land, open country, you know, uh, that's land anybody else can hunt and and so uh that's that's kind of my general i guess uh how i go about it is i get to an area and i just start putting the miles on and i get a pretty good idea where other hunters are get a feel for things hopefully i get a visual on a big buck and once i have that visual i make a play and and put together a game plan from there so jared if if you don't say say you're going on I don't know. It's, it's a, a bad year or whatever. You just you two days in and you don't got a visual on something that piques your interest. I've seen on, I've watched, you know, many of your videos. I've seen how you, you do, you will get out of the car and kind of move around in glass. Is, is that pretty much like you described this past on, is that kind of what you're doing? You'll just kind of pick spots way off the road and you'll hike in and give them a try. And if, if there's deer in there, you're in the money. And if not, you're hiking back out and doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If if yep. if there's a pocket that you just get a feeling about that you can't, like in a lot of that open country, I do find a spot where I can get on a high point with from the vehicle and 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 long range glass it. And, and if 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 I don't see anything visually, I'll just move on to the next piece. But there are pieces that you just in your gut you just feel like 
you know, I haven't seen anybody else hunting there. It looks like crap. There might be a little tiny ditch, you know, that you see on your area once you're there. And it's like, things just kind of click. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, one of my favorite pieces in Kansas that I discovered a few years ago, that was a piece where you have to walk back into it. But unfortunately, <laughs> there was a there was another fellow hunter from Wisconsin in there for 10 days straight and I never got a chance. I didn't want to mess up his hunt. And so I, I didn't go in there. It was about a square mile piece, but it's open country. So it's like, you know, uh, one of them deals where a square mile doesn't, that's not a lot of ground in the open country. Um, and, and so I just, I never actually got to go in there, but that's a piece where I, but I did discover a, a spot about three and a half miles out that I found that I never looked at before where I was able to glass more than I, uh, more than I could ever before. So I start looking for pieces this year. I really noticed how I was looking two, three miles out. Sometimes it was just so other hunters wouldn't see what I'm up to. (laughs) And uh, cause that turns into a whole nother (laughs) game, I guess. You bring up a good question or a good point. The fact that in open country, it just seems like, you know, a square mile of open country is very different than a square mile of thick timber and mixed fields and ag and all that kind of stuff. So how do you, and maybe I'll throw this to you, Eddie, first, Eddie, how do you look at hunting pressure on open country differently than you might in Illinois or Iowa and traditional ag land? Is it, do you have to react to it more or differently? Or do you think that deer give you a break in some kind of fashion? Uh, how do you think about that? Well, I think you have to deal with it very differently than in traditional country because you're not talking woodlot whitetails here that'll go over on the next 40 over and wait you out and be right back. A lot of open country deer, they are very vagrant, uh, especially the bigger mature bucks and especially especially during the rut. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how to put into words what I do. I really don't. Uh, other than, you know, I've spent the largest portion of my hunting career before bow hunting got high tech, before trail cameras, before GPS, before Google Earth, before anything. I had to just, you know, go out and spend an absolutely enormous amount of time in the field. Um, well, you get a feel for what you're doing. Is that I don't know if that's a good way to put it, mm-hmm. but you just gain savvy. You get to where you can look at country and you can make judgments on it that you know other people aren't making. And I I know that's not going to help anybody with their own personal strategy. Everybody's looking for shortcuts nowadays. They want you to tell them the secret formula. You know, there may be one, but I don't know it. Maybe the younger guys nowadays have figured it out and can put it into a formula. My formula was just time and savvy. And on open country deer, I mean, I have went out in places that literally I would hunt for the entire on and off for the entire month, October, November, and even into December, and never see another human being. Um, nobody in the right mind would even hunt out there. Um, be a mile, two miles maybe, in any direction to the nearest pocket of whitetail cover, Um but I have patience of Job. I, I know what goes on out there in the rut. And I will set a fence line, maybe a, a, a cottonwood tree. If I can see for three or 400 yards in every direction, I'm going to call one in if I have to 
You know, I mean, all I need to do is get my eye on a big rutting buck crossing the open country somewhere during the rut, and I feel like I'm going to call them in and kill them. Um, I don't hunt the hubs where everybody hunts. Like, you like you know, he mentioned a while ago, you know, find out where everybody hunts. Well, they're all going to hunt where all the deer sign is and where all the deer are. I hunt exactly away from all that for a lot of reasons. I can't, I'm not going to mess with the people. I'm just not... <laughs> I'm antisocial to begin with, but anyway, I'm going to get out there and catch that buck when he travels from this creek bottom here three miles over to the other one, uh, and if he'll be walking down a fence line, a hedgerow, a brushy finger draw or something, and, you know, I sit sometimes for days on end and don't hardly see a deer to speak of, but when I do, it's usually a really good, you know, mature deer, because I, I mainly employ this strategy during the peak of the rut during November. Um, I've, I've jumped these deer living out there in October many, many times on my scouting trips. I've jumped them out in the grass, the prairie of Kansas, where literally they were bedding out there all day long in blue stem prairie grass, and the nearest tree would be over an air mile for 360 degrees in every direction. People don't even believe those deer live out there, but the big ones, the big ones specialize on it. They live with their eyes. They can see. They bet on them prairie knolls. They can see for half a mile in every direction. They're like antelope almost. And uh, so you just got to get savvy and convince yourself what's possible out in that open country. Because if you don't have it in your head to begin with what's out there and what you can do with it, you won't go out there. Hmm. Hey, Eddie, um, so that's a... Uh a really cool description of kind of what kind of the areas like you tend to pick out. Um, right. Is, or would you, you mentioned like a cottonwood tree. Um, and one of my yeah. questions, um, one of my questions that I had written down was, was like what I guess what I call like landmark trees. I've heard the guys that hunt open country mention landmark trees that are kind of just out in the open one single tree or a little stand of cottonwoods right. or something. Is that, is that, the kind of stuff you're looking for or are you actually going out there and finding like um maybe something like a primary scrape or something under that's worked and you're expecting a lot of deer to come from or, or is there really something to like these landmark trees that where deer kind of come and go to and from them the, i think there is a lot to that from my you know deer are like a dog i believe they they've got scent posts that's what a lot in my opinion as a signpost rub is it's more of a scent marker than anything uh, it's like a dog that'll walk around his territory, maybe, you know, as a city block he lives in, and he'll pee on each fire hydrant on each corner of that block. Well, deer, I think, socialize a lot by smell. And, you know, these trees like this, I don't hunt them because they're maybe, say, what they call a landmark type tree that every deer is going to come to. I mean, if I find a giant signpost rub out in the prairie, which I have done, uh, let me tell you real quickly about a buck I killed up in the prairie of Kansas a few years ago square mile of blue stem it had one little i call it a swag it was a gentle ravine that wound through it and in the entire length of that mile through that little swag there might have been a half dozen cottonwood trees scattered about every two to three hundred yards up and down it no brush cover just grass a few scattered cottonwoods i went out there and one day you know walked that ravine and there was a little sumac tree there and it had a little rub. I walked over to it, and right there beside it was a cottonwood about four inch in diameter that had been growing up by it, and it had a big old rub on it. Well, I said, okay, 
you know, case closed. There's one right here close. Probably I've already run them off. And all I got to do is get back here, get in one of these trees here close where I can see this entire area right here. And he's going to show up during the rut. I'll see him somewhere. So I sat there two complete days from dark morning to dark evening. Didn't see a close deer, anything of any size. I think I only saw like two total deer on the earth in those two days, and they weren't close, and they weren't big. On the third day, right at dusk, I looked out there, and this buck was standing on the knoll out there 300 yards in the prairie grass, just standing out there looking around. I clicked my antlers a couple of times and seen him look my direction, and he dropped off into the ravine uh, up above me maybe 300 yards. And I thought, man, you know, this could be good. Stood there at full alert for about 10 minutes, and the next thing I know, I catch a slight movement. The blue stem prairie grass was literally close to four foot tall, and I looked to my right as far as I could, and he was standing there at 35 yards just like a statue looking around. He had eased up that ravine, took him about 10 or 15 minutes to get there, and he was on full alert looking for what he'd heard, you know, and uh, it was one of them nip and tuck deals to get that deer bow shot because it was dead calm that day. You could hear a pin drop out of the tree, but to make a long story short, he ended up getting himself bow killed right at dark, had maybe 15 minutes of shooting light left, and he had been bedded out there in that prairie grass and got up late in the evening. And he was so old, he didn't hardly have a tooth in his head. He was one of these old ancient bucks that was just a prairie monarch that had lived out there all his life and survived with his eyes. And for me to accomplish killing him out there in that type of a habitat with my bow, you know, those things rank right up there on the top of the totem pole with you all your days. You know, you're you're just really uh, satisfied to pull it off. But anyway, you know, that's kind of the way it works with me. I just, I, I, I believe they come to those certain trees as a landmark sometimes but especially if you got any overhanging lambs like you mentioned where you can find a scrape if you ever find a scrape out in the open prairie it ain't there for no reason and there will be a dominant buck right because if you take the prairie grass i hunt in up the flint hills of kansas you know every square mile up there has got a large antler dominant buck in it and he may live out in that grass but his sign is there somewhere so if you get out there and look for it and find just a little bit of the sign to me if you put that with the patience of job then you ought to have a chance at that deer probably mm. eddie do you think uh you, you mentioned calling a few times it sounds like that's been a, a big part of your success or, or a, a tactic you often use do you think because you pick these spots that are away from like the obvious where all the other hunters are the creek bottoms that are, you know have more trees and stuff that you're you're kind of out in these spots where typically they don't ever encounter other humans. Do you think that right. is part of the reason your calling is so effective? Oh, it's absolutely. I mean, I've always said this right here, redneck, but it's simple and it's to the point. I'm a great hunter of dumb deer. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, you give me dumb deer, I, I'm pretty good. You know, I, you know, you put me in the Northeast with the most educated whitetails in the world, I may become a very average bow hunter, but I love to hunt dumb animals. So I go to the extremes of getting dumb animals in front of me. And yes, out in that prairie like that, those big mature bucks, if you really know their lifestyle, if you can really grasp it, they don't come down to the standard cover hardly ever. Um, they don't live down there with the rest of the deer. They're vagrants. They're loners. 
and they they don't get bothered they don't get educated a lot so when you get out there you know and you're sitting there like a diamond in a goat's rear end you know with your bow and one of them comes by then you know yeah you're dealing with a dumber deer in a way it's not a dumber deer because it's usually if it's an older mature bucket it's still got got the goods but you catch them with their pants down the deer that are down there in those creek bottoms those two three four year olds that get, are getting messed with all the time i mean it's just like anything else in life the, the you know give me dumb elk i can kill them give me dumb whitetails i can kill them uh you you got everybody else can cut their teeth on the ones that's getting hammered all day long. I won't be there for a lot of reasons. I don't want to hunt super educated deer. The ones I'm after ain't going to be in number down there because they get killed, and um, I don't deal with people too well. I think Eddie hit, hit one nail on the head there too when he said uh, that that I can definitely attest to, and that is those those big mature deer like that they don't go down in there. That's, that's pretty rare. Maybe a, a fluke hot doe will drag one down there once in a while or something. But, right. uh, you know, it's like that piece that I was talking about that me and Matt walked into where these mature bucks were, were back in there. I mean, that was a mile from prime, lush, crick bottom, the kind of stuff that you just, most whitetail hunters would be drooling over. And I never stepped foot in there because uh, those and those big deer, I never seen them hardly even get to where you could see them. You know, like they stay, they stay, they knew where they were at. And the reason I kind of hit on that piece is because I went back late season. I had to cut that trip short, went back late season. And in that square, it was a big square uh, with no road going through it. Most of it was private. But with this public, I ended up seeing, I don't know, probably six more bucks that I figured were five to six year plus old animals out, you know, in the, in the course of, I don't know how many days I was there, there in late season. Uh, the one day I had 12 bucks together, batchered up, which was kind of a crummy deal. If you're trying to late season bow hunt and, and play the ground game with them, like me, that's pretty tough when you got 12 sets of eyes and it ain't rut, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jared, what about the the landmark tree thing that the Andy brought up? Do you and I know most of the time you're you're on the move, you're trying to get eyes on a deer, but do you ever find yourself in a situation where you haven't found one, but you come across a piece of sign like a lone tree with a big scrape underneath it or a huge rub? Do you ever take a second and say, you know what, this is the spot that might be worth waiting as a as a you know scouting point or anything like that? Do you put any value into something along those lines? You, you know, there's been many times over the years since we uh, quit running tree stands back in 09 that I said, boy, if I had to do the tree stand, that would be a hell of a spot. And I do think that a person that has a balance of both, I just love hunting whitetails on the ground and I'm too impatient to, uh, to, to, to wait a real long time. But there's been many times where, you know, I know that I'd be better off sometimes, you know, having that as a strategy. It's just like, Eddie brought up calling. That's a tool that you can use. And sometimes that works, you know, and it's like, that's the way I kind of look at things. Like we have that decoy, that's a tool. It's not for every situation, but for the right situation, we'll break that out. Or Chansey, he's, he's great at calling, you know, and, and uh, sometimes you break that out. You got all these different, you know, things in your arsenal, your, your hunter's toolkit, whatever you want to call it, that it's like, you know, different strategies apply. And, to certain scenarios. And, and I think, you know, if I wasn't 
if I had more patience, then there's been many times that I've come across situations just like Eddie described there that it's like, yeah, if I put my time in there for five days, I'd probably kill a big one. And then sometimes we <laughs> get the visual and, and yeah, yeah, you know, you know, catch one walking by or or he wasn't bedding too far away from there. Um, you know that we see that quite quite often. Yeah, let's let's dive into something that both of you mentioned, uh, but I'd like to get in a little more detail. It's the whole calling thing, which it sounds like, you know, at least in your perspective, Eddie, seems to work better in these areas uh, than others. Maybe because these deer aren't pressured as much as maybe they are here in me and Andy's home state of Michigan. Um, can you can you walk through in detail? the types of calls you think work best in open country or the scenarios when you would use some kind of call in this kind of country. Uh, maybe Jared, you can kick us off with just kind of a rundown of the detailed, um, the details behind how and when you might call in these places. You know, a lot of people know my kind of ground game strategy. So, you know, I, I generally, because I'm going to try to put together a game plan to go to this deer, I generally hold off on calling myself unless he's covering too much ground and I can't get ahead of him or I don't have him bedded, you know, or sometimes there's one across the line or he gets over across the line onto private. That's another scenario I'll, I'll pull calling out. But other than that, my strategy is usually like I like to lay quiet, not let him know, bed him, or maybe I've already got him bedded. And, and then I'm going to plan a route in like that. You know, the, the one thing about calling in open country, too, uh, you know, Eddie brought it up. It is very effective and it's really effective when you got a decoy on top of it. You know, a lot of those open country areas, they not always, but, you know, like the plains of Kansas, the population, deer populations generally aren't too high. So I think that that helps make the calling, you know, better. Um and maybe Eddie can hit on that a little bit more. Yeah, what would you say, Eddie? Yeah. Well, definitely the population is, you know, low in the prairie-type country, but so is the people population, which makes it a go for me. Because, you know, to me, as I've gotten older, and I don't get me wrong, I've lived through most of the stages of bow hunting maturity, and I don't knock anybody for whatever stage they're in, but you'll learn if you get to be blessed to live long enough and do it long enough, you'll eventually get to be where it's about a lot more than just killing those giant antlers. I've chased them giant antlers for 40 years, and I've got my share of them. Now it's more about, you know, the quality of the outing, wide open spaces and quiet, unplugging from the rat race. So, yeah, that's why I hunt the prairie. And as far as the calling goes, here's the deal with me. I've always admired a guy that can get on the ground and go after these things. I I, I can't be a specialist you know, in that, because I just, I said a curry, you know, I have not felt like I am good at getting on the ground and killing white tail. So I, I totally admire the ability to do that. I'm envious of it, even though I'm accomplished at what I do, I'm not accomplished at what you're doing. You know what I mean? And so you need to know that I totally am awed by the fact that you pursue these big bucks on the ground and kill them effectively with a bow. I sat somewhere, so the calling's a lot more effective for me. I can totally see why you wouldn't want to call on the ground. It's going to focus that deer on you. You know, um, to me, it'd be a buddy system. If I was going to be on the ground and call, I would want somebody with a decoy off to the side of me calling, you know, and then maybe have me be the shooter. I don't know. I don't know. I'm speculating. But 
for me sitting in a tree, it's deadly because I'm trying to bring a deer to me that is, is not going to be able to see me when he gets there. And yeah, the decoy thing can be really good. Uh, you know, if I have one, uh, I've had them react to it every type of direction, you know, good, negative, whatever. I, I've just about got to where I don't use the decoy calling anymore because um, if I see a rutting buck that I call prowling, in other words, he's crossing country and it's, he's, he's just stumbling along looking to get somewhere to go harass another doe, I just feel like I can call the thing in almost all the time. And I do it mainly with a grunt call. I just standard O. I don't get fancy. A couple of grunts. If I, if he's so far away that he's not going to hear it, I always carry a large set of antlers to get their attention because I've actually stopped them from probably a third of a mile or so off in the prairie with a big set of antlers just to get them stopped and get them to listen and then give them a couple of loud grunts. And then just I've watched him walk a third of a mile unbroken to walk right up 10 yards from my tree and stop. And uh, so grunt call is deadly. Uh, I don't ever call if unless I'm absolutely have to. In other words, I'll call to get his attention and get him started. I don't make another sound unless he loses interest. Don't overcall. Mm-hmm. They'll get far more suspicious of overcalling than they will undercalling. Keep their curiosity up. Don't let them pinpoint you any more than necessary. If they're coming from a long distance, you know, they're not going to know within, you know, X amount of feet where you're at over there. So let them get over there and then that, give them a chance to walk around you a little bit trying to see, you know, where you're at and give you a good shot. If you're calling when they're walking in, they're going to have you pinpointed and they're going to walk right up there and stand there facing you looking. And, you know, so anyway, grunt call and have a big set of antlers to catch one's attention from way off. What about wind direction? Uh, you know, in, in broken country and in, in ag land here, um, a lot of times we're not going to see deer as far away as you might. But one of the things I'm thinking about is, is this deer generally on my downwind side? If that's the case, I might not, I probably won't call to him. Even if I'd love for him to come in closer, I'd be worried about him swinging downwind all the way and catching my wind as he comes in. Um do you yeah. worry about that same thing? Because it seems like an open country where there's you know, maybe no obstacles. It's it's really easy for them to swing downwind. Do you see them do that? Uh, what, do you, what are your considerations there? They do sometimes. I've had them, especially if it's I, – I like to kill these suckers during the absolute peak rut when they're, they're literally just staggering around in a stupor. And I'm talking like usually from about the 12th, 15th of November on. Uh, the breeding is starting. They're kind of getting goofy. The big ones finally show up. The really big ones that you don't even know exist will show up by around, you know, sometimes I have bucks out in that prairie that will show up around the week of Thanksgiving that I don't even know existed. They're coming from somewhere, and they're usually the absolute biggest. You'll see them one time. You had better get them killed that time. You're never going to see them again. They're liable to be five or eight miles from there the next day. I don't know where they go. They're like vapors, but um, they will at times, you know, if it's earlier in the rut, earlier, especially in October, you might start trying to call to one. He might start coming, but he's really more alert. He's really more uh, thinking, and he will swing around and get you. And so I don't usually – I just look at the deer and the time of year and what he's doing and how goofy I think he is. And, you know, if – 
if he's goofy, out of his mind with the rut, usually at first call, they just beeline it right to you. They just beeline it. Eddie, is there is there a certain grunt call that you have come to – has become your favorite, or are you just kind of whatever you can get at the store? Well, I'm you know, I'm a simpleton. I really am. I actually never even bought a grunt call for like – well, I first got one about 10 years ago, and I, that tells you a lot. I, I used to just use my voice, literally. I could sound just like a buck grunt with my voice, and I just did it with my voice. I finally ended up getting, I think it was a Primos hardwood or something. Just something, I know what they sound like, and anything that'll make that sound suits my, blows my mm. skirt up. So, no, I don't have a, I don't have a favorite call okay. or anything. Yep. Where do you want to go next, Andy? Well, so... Jared, I, I mean, well, you guys both could probably answer this, but I know I think I've seen it on some of your videos, Jared, but are you seeing sometimes like individual mature bucks kind of in the same general area of open country year after year? Like, yeah. uh, they're like, like, like they obviously mature bucks have a home range and it varies depending on, you know, terrain and habitat. Um, but it seems like in open country, you sometimes get on those same bucks and, very similar areas, right? Yeah, you know, but uh, Eddie brought up a good point there about, you know, sometimes they might be coming from five, eight miles away, and he said, you better get them killed that day when you see them. You know, that that just made me think about over the last few years, I've had three different big bucks that by the next day, I had a straight line distance on them of over four miles that they had went. Mm -hmm. Um it's crazy. And, 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 uh, for sure, a hundred percent, the same deer, you know? Uh, so I was just kind of thinking about this about a month ago when we had one that was just over four and a half miles, that's straight line. That's no fooling around. That's right, right to a T. I had a, I had a, you know, a mark spot that you could see on the aerial and all that, but it got me thinking about like the range. So if I got a big buck spotted one day and I don't get him killed, in that open country, I know that they can be that far away. But that makes it pretty challenging for, like, myself to – to. I got my hands full trying to find him a lot of times the next day because he could be anywhere, let's just say, four miles from that spot. So now you're talking about an area that you got to cover that's eight miles by eight miles. Most of it's probably going to be private, and you're going to hope maybe you got a couple pieces of public, three, four, maybe in that eight-mile-by-eight-mile eight section – you're talking about 40,000 acres that he could potentially be on. You know, that's the kind of range that some some of those west, you know, those open deer cover. Um, but uh, as far as year to year, you know, uh, I don't actually see generally the same buck. Like, I, you know, I go out there, I'll find new bucks every year and wonder what happened to this one the year before. You know, so I don't know. You know, I haven't had much success on that, but for people that know my style, I don't do any pre-scouting. I don't run cameras. I spend very little time in an area if I don't get a visual and I'm pulling the plug and moving on. Um, so, uh, you know, and I'm not, I try not to get attached to a deer. Um, I love big bucks just the same as all, all of us on here do, but I try not to do that. Um, because I, you know, there's, it's, it's easy to get hung up on them and they might be on private. And I had that happen to me a, uh, two years ago 
uh, you know, a big massive deer that I thought would end up on public. I, I kind of let some opportunities go on some good, beautiful public land deer that I shouldn't have, you know, but what, yeah. so. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Cause I, I, I hunt a lot of, uh, it's a little different. I hunt a lot of Northwest Ohio in a couple counties where it's, I mean, it's 99% open flat grant flat ground, but uh, it's ag. So, um, you know, once those, once the corn and the beans come out, it's just flat marble, like flat top open country. And the deer do have very, like, they are very nomadic. I have noticed, but what, what I did start to key in on is I, I was starting to find out that certain mature bucks were showing up, you know, say I often found bucks that would be two, three miles apart at various parts of the season, but then they would show up in specific little areas of cover during the same time of year. And it wasn't like a, a, a guaranteed thing or every deer was doing that, but I was starting to see trends where I was kind of picking up the same deer in the same small pockets of cover, very similar times year to year. So I was just curious if you ever saw that out there. Yeah, you know, I, I think that generally, I think that if I found a big buck in that open country and I had my heart set on him and I didn't get him one year, you know, I do think if I dedicated myself to that area and didn't move on, if I didn't find him, eventually I'd probably find him if he wasn't dead. He would probably be somewhere, you know, well, I mean, my buddy uh, Tanner there, he shot one that he should have gotten last year and that it took him four or five days to find him. And that deer was six miles away from where he was on him the year before. Wow. Uh, so, uh, and he did end up getting him, And th that was a, that was a big one. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they're going to be 50 miles away or, or 25 miles away. I think you have a rare case of that happening, but you know, but, um, but yeah, they cover ground in that open country. What about you, Eddie? It's been my findings that they, once they get, I'm, I don't know, let's just say they get above four and a half years, somewhere in there where the breaking point is, where they become fairly much of a loner. Out in that open country, they will, I don't know at that point when they finally kind of decide to become the vapor type buck, if they're mm -hmm. going to stay around where they were born and raised or if they're going to leave country and go make their way in another spot. But when they get to where they're going and they finally start into the older part of their life from, let's just say, four and a half on up, they develop a very finely tuned plan on where they can live and not be bothered. And they figure it out real quick, and it doesn't necessarily conform to what we, the people, uh, would, would think of maybe. But it works for them, and I think they pretty well stay in a small area most of the year out in that open country. I think, you know, once they get done rutting, they go to their, their hidey hole, I call it, area, and it may not be a hole. It might be right out in the wide open grass. It could be a big old prairie basin. Uh, I've seen them bed in a basin that didn't have, that was a half a mile wide in all directions that only had a couple of little spots of waist high buck brush out in it and and for some reason that's where they liked and that i think they live in those spots until the rut then they get up and they start to travel and they don't go very far i don't think until they start you know once they start breeding 
They finally lose their cookies. They get goofy. Them, that's the time of year when you're liable to see one of them walking across the interstate or standing in the front front of your truck in the county road. They get out of their mind around Thanksgiving. They've been breeding. All of a sudden, they can't find another hot doe, hardly, and they lose their cookies looking for that last little flurry of rut that, you know, that last hot doe they can find. And they're liable to travel literally countless miles during that time of season. But as soon as that starts to get over there in December, they'll migrate right back to their hidey hole, I do believe, because they make a living getting to seven or eight years of age by staying in a hidey hole somewhere. They don't get that old by walking around in different places all the time. They'll get their rear ends poached or shot off by some ranch hand. Something will happen to them. They have a hidey hole area out in that open country that makes them a living. So you mentioned, right there, you mentioned some of that, you know, some kind of little brush that might be a hidey hole for a buck out there. And and earlier, you mentioned a handful of other kind of habitat features that might attract deer movement a little bit. You mentioned that swag, like a kind of a low ravine. Mm -hmm. You mentioned fence Mm -hmm. rows. You mentioned, you know, some of these isolated patches of trees. Um, For someone new to this type of hunting who's considering going out to open country for the first time, um, are there any other habitat features to consider? I'm just thinking as a new guy, if I came out there and I had a list of like 10 different things I should be looking for, um, one of them is going to be a swag, a low, a low ditch to through there. One of them is going to be some tree lines. Are there any other cover or terrain features that someone should put on their list of, of check on this or consider watching for deer in this type of zone? Well, you know, when you ask that, one little thing pop into my mind. Now, this isn't real common, but it, it occurs, and I've found them, especially up in Nebraska a lot. Um, I call them, they're not potholes, but they're close, swampy, mm-hmm. little swampy spots that are low-lying, and they're out in the middle of nowhere in open country. Maybe they have cattails, or maybe they don't, but they stay wet way more than anywhere else. They'll grow some stuff that's a little bigger and taller. And I'm telling you, I, I just personally believe that's where a lot of these bucks make their living in those little spots like that. Um, they've got, you know, usually a little bit of water there. And, um, I mean, these, I have watched mature bucks pre rut out in the prairie, a mile from any trees in any direction, get up, 30 minutes before dark, start browsing in the prairie grass, in the grass. Now, there's like 17, or I don't remember, I read it somewhere, there's like, I don't know how many kinds of species of things that grow out in that grass that are all all high priority to a deer. People look at that grass and they say, well, that's just cattle land. Them deer can't make a living out there. Don't even kid yourself. They can make an awesome living out in that grass. There's all kinds of things they eat out there, and it's all down at the ground level. Because I've watched them put their head down in that blue stem and browse down on the ground level for a minute or two at a time before they ever even pick their head up. You know what I mean? So, you know, a little a little swag you ever find out in the middle of nowhere with some brush or, you know, reeds and high grass or weeds in it, uh, let it pick your brain because you may have found a spot where one of them likes to bed often. Yeah. And- there's a couple of points that you were bringing up there too. Mark, you said you hunt a lot of open flat crop in that north part of Ohio. And that got me thinking about a big buck I was on a month ago. 
And this buck was literally living in a cut corn, very barren cut corn. It wasn't like a weedy one. And he would just find a little tiny low spot and bed in it. I caught him out there six days in a row. And I just didn't have wind on, on, on two, two days that I really needed it to, to put a stock on him. So I never ended up getting the deer, but it was really cool. And when you find those big bucks like that, in those pockets, it's really fun to sit back and kind of observe how they'll play their cards so fine-tunedly with if the wind switches a little bit. You know, I had a situation the year before on a big one. I had six stocks in seven days on him, and, uh, you know, he, he really liked this one kind of – it was open country, but kind of a ditch draw. And that's one thing, too, in Kansas, I find, is little tiny ditches. You can't hardly sometimes see them on an aerial, but if it's – it don't need to be very de- deep, but especially you get a wind time day, you you can about bet that there'll be a there'll be a good one. They like bedding in those kind of like little ditches. We find them in there quite regularly. Yeah, that's I see that. Fact. that. That's a fact right there. I hadn't thought about that. But out there in the prairie, the wind can blow like a banshee, and they will get down in the uh, little bitty depression or behind a, a, you know, a knoll, a small knoll. And I watched some uh, this year, one big buck in particular, come and go from this one spot out in a, in a real broad, low, low spot. He come and went with two or three different does over a period of a week that he was breeding. He, and that's another thing. You know, those big deer, they might make a trip down to the more traditional cover at night and, you know, you go down there and you walk that out and you see these giant rubs. And you're yeah. like, oh, my God, you know, I'm going to hunt down here. This is where I, they're at. <laughs> well, they're just down there at night. They come down there at night, cut them a doe out of the herd, and take her back out into the wide open to breed her. They do not want no competition with that doe. They don't want to stay down there because some other bucks are going to come by and try to kick their rear ends for her. And, you know, it's natural. You take your girlfriend, take her out in the country to go park, and you don't, you know what I'm saying? But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. that's the way it works with them. You know, they play the game pretty smart, and if you ever watch one of them coming and going with a doe to a spot out in the open country, you may have found what I kind of think might be. I kind of, I don't know this. I don't even know when I'm enough of a redneck that I'm repeating stuff that's standard terminology anymore. But years ago, I started calling them breeding sanctuaries. They have spots they like to take their doe to out there. And they will dominate her. I've watched them run them like a cutting horse until both of them's tongues would be flopping out of their head, hitting them upside the head. And they will eventually domineer that doe and make her stay. And she'll give up and stay. And then they breed. And, you know, that usually lasts for like a day and a half. They stay there and do that. And then the next night, he's liable to go down there at 2 in the morning, cut him another doe out and head back out there. But if you find everyone, one of them out in that open country breeding, you better believe that that's one of his favorite little spots right there. Yeah. There's a couple of good points you brought up there about that is that's, that's a lot of times why I don't like to get hung up on sign that I do find out, out right. on, like I'm cautious of it, knowing that those deer could very, you know, you survey the situation. I think you brought up a point earlier, the more you do it, the more you just, you go with your gut, your gut gets very sharp at being able to d- detect like, is this a public land deer making this sign? Like, is he coming here in daylight? And I see many times hunters, I think, in my opinion, they'll get hung up on that sign. And it's like, well, that's, that's those, those deer are private land deer that are coming over here at night making that sign. And you might get lucky, but, you know, and that doesn't 
mean that all sign is that way, but uh, I'm just kind of cautious of that. Um, and, and one other point, too, in that open country that we look for a lot when it's rut, when we're putting on the miles and we're spending this much time glassing, a lot of times what tips us off on a big mature buck, you know, is an actual satellite buck. You know, just, you know, if you're, if you're covering ground, if you're glass doing a lot of glass and, and we do that, we do this in the timber too. You know, I killed one a number of years ago doing this in the timber. I ended up some satellite bucks. I called in and I was like, there's a big buck up on that ridge. I bet with a doe and it, that was all woods, but I use those satellite pucks as they're the ones that let me know, you know, and uh, so we'll look for that. You know, you see a little little tiny buck out there, you know, standing in that grass or or whatever, and he's doesn't look quite right. Like he's just standing around and it's like, what's he doing? Well, he's probably satellite and you park it there and you start glassing. You might catch a big buck's rack. I mean, pretty good chance there's going to be a big mature buck locked down with a doe. Um, especially out in that open country like that, where those doe numbers aren't very high. Usually if a doe is hot, a mature buck's going to find her and, and that's, you're going to, you're going to have that. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You, you mentioned the satellite bucks kind of tipping you off to, to locating a buck like that. I know that glassing in general, like getting eyes on a good buck is, is such a huge part of your whole strategy. Are there any other things you've picked up over the years that help you spot more deer, whether that's where you choose to glass from or the actual glass you use or gear you use or glassing techniques, anything like that that helps you actually get your eyes on one? Yeah, there, there, there's a couple of things. One thing is, is if you're going to do this open ground and you're going to kind of do this spot and stock kind of thing, you know, I, I, I absolutely have to have good glass. Like I can't be without it because I won't get, I won't get nearly as much accomplished. So 
you know, get some good glass. But one one trick that I learned last year, and now I use it all the time, is I have a pretty good tripod, and I've had it for 15 years, but it's got a nice fluid head on it, and it's got a wide enough base that I can just drop my binoculars right on that. And sometimes you get a wind day where you got 20, 30 mile an hour winds and you're trying to glass grass, you got a lot of movement and it's very hard to pick up just randomly if you, unless you bedded one, you know, if you bed one and you know he's out there, well, obviously it's easier to find it. But if you're just free floating glassing and you haven't gotten a visual yet, what I like to do is set that tripod up and then I pull down on, on it with my binocs and I can about get rid of most of that wind you know, that, that I couldn't otherwise do. And, you know, my buddy Tanner, he was doing some hunting with me this year and, and, and he, he's a really, really good hunter. And I showed him that trick and he immediately was like, Whoa, this is a game changer. This is a serious game changer. Um, so try that, you know, that's, that's a good one. I always like to have good optics with a good steady rest, you know, and in fact, in the vehicles, I make my own sort of there's not a window mount that i like so i'll take an actual fluid head and then i put one of the window clamps on it so um because having a good steady rest when you're glad when you're glass and stuff half mile it ain't as big of a deal but when you're trying to glass you know beyond a mile and sometimes you're getting out there two three miles i mean i've picked up deer i mean people would probably you know think i'm BSing, but i've picked them up right around five mile deer before but you got to have a steady rest if you're and good optics if you're going to do that it, you got to have both though if in my if you were gonna have to pick just one optic for your long distance glassing so you're from the car or, or really long distance type stuff would you use a spotter or would you like a big you know high power set of binoculars for that Okay, so if I had to pick one optic, and that's the only optic I could use all fall, I would take my 12 by 50s, and those are uh, those ones are Vortex Ultra HDs. Um, I generally will spot deer with the binoculars first, then transfer over to the spotter to, you know, how big a buck are we dealing with here? Is there other, you know, and try to pick up, you know, if there's, you know, that's one thing when I get a visual on a big buck and I'm going to make a play, I got to know, is he alone? Does he have just a doe? Is there one satellite buck, two, three, where are they at? Cause I got to plan a route to get in there and not just get into compound range. You know, I'm trying to get in longbow range. And so that's a whole nother end, a camera guy and trying to weasel in there. And, you know, uh, that, that's the one thing about doing that game is, a lot of times we aren't successful, but sometimes it all comes together. And sometimes it's the ones that you think there's not a chance you're going to pull it off, but let's try it that come together real smooth. That's hunting, you know. Yeah. Some, you, know, you don't always get them. Hey, let me interject something right here because yeah. I got to tell you, I, I can't tell you how um, much I am stymied by the thought of getting in on these big deer and killing them off the ground with a longbow type scenario. Um, you, the man, I'm telling you, uh, you deserve, I bow, I bow down. No kidding. I'm, uh, I mean, I know there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, but of all the routes to choose, you make bow hunting, bow hunting. Okay. And, uh, you do it at the most incredible level. I mean, I, I look for the, you know, shortcuts to kill them, set in a tree stand, let them stumble by, it don't get any better than what you're doing, and I, I, I applaud you, okay? 
Well, I appreciate that. But, you know, like with it, though, I mean, sometimes I've had 10, 15 stocks where I didn't get them. They're unsuccessful. But the cool thing about it, (laughs) you learn you learn things along the way that sometimes, you know, and, and you can, I'm sure, attest to that with your style of hunting as well. You know, you learn the ones that you don't get are the ones you always, you know, learn the most from. Yeah, well, I tell you. To try to figure out what you're doing and make it work, um, I'd have to start back over. I'd have God would have to give me twenty or thirty years back to get started because I, I'm, I just I, I'm not a great stalker. And to get into you know wooden stick bow range uh, and get it pulled off, I couldn't hit a hit them anyway. But I mean, I listen. I know what you're doing, and I I, I give you all due credit. Okay. So so. Uh, so tell me this, Eddie, um, with your style of hunting in open country, mm-hmm. how important is glassing and optics and all that to you? Um, do you, do you do any long distance scouting like that beforehand or is it all ground and pound hike it until you find a good tree? Um, how does that fit into your style? Well, I, I do use optics. Uh, I, I don't use them, you know, at the level that we're talking here. I mean, I always have a set of 10, 10 power you know, I have a little small set of Swarovski 10 powers that go with me and they're right there in reach. Cause I do, you know, even though I'm not as much into big bucks as I used to be, I still am into them. I, uh, I, I want to know what I'm looking at, you know, and I see them a lot of times at a distance that I can't tell if it's a 125 inch or 165 inch, you know, I don't know. So yes, I use them. I really do. But you know, I'm just to the point in my life now in, in my early sixties to where if I see a good deer, I want to try to get it that day. I go with, you know, if my if I don't have a wedgie that day and I'm in a good mood, I want to kill a deer, and I, I try to do it. You know, if it's, I might shoot a 140-inch deer anymore, which I used to wouldn't have walked across the street for 140-inch deer, but things have changed, and, uh, you know, I go with my heart anymore. I didn't even shoot a good deer this year up in Kansas. I, I, I didn't even shoot one. I just let them all go and let some 150s go and finally just you know i just you know what i mean and so i'm changing i'm going through menopause right now and it ain't funny he's telling, telling you guys live it up while you can take this old man's advice and when you get close to starting to feel it to hit you shift it into high gear and don't let it get you down go go get hormone replacement therapy do something just don't go get old because um it's not going to be fun on you if you if you've lived large like like we try to, I've lived large for 40 years and it's hard to get old. Do you know what I mean? It's hard to accept the limitations. So, you know, I just, uh, I take really good optics, but I'm sure they don't play nearly as integral part in, in my hunt as they do Jared's, you know? Yeah. What What's next for you, Andy? Um, I, I know there, there's so many things that we're talking about here <laughs> that, make me think about some of the stuff we were doing in Nebraska a few years ago. And, and even though we we were able to get on, you know, I got on really early and you were on one pretty quick too. We were able to figure it out in that scenario. I'm already thinking, you know, if we had, if we'd stayed 10 days or if we were more picky, I wonder if we could have found deer over in this area, or I wonder if we could have went about it a little bit different in the spot we were hunting. It was slightly different than some of these scenarios and that we were hunting kind of sandhill type habitat with big wide open grassy Hills. And then, very thick covered river bottoms in the middle. So you had one swath of great big cover surrounded by an ocean of open grass. Um, 
So I'm thinking about that scenario as we're talking through here, but what are you thinking about Andy? Yeah, I've been thinking about that too. Um, here's, here's a good question for you guys. Um, and I know this depends on the time of the year, like early season versus rut versus late. And you guys can, can, uh, expand on that if you want. But in my experience, like I've seen bucks bed in this type of country, like seemingly using the wind to their advantage, but then there's other times I'll see them. Like, it seems like they're looking more for shade. And they're not using the wind to their advantage. And then other times, like maybe in some real cold weather, they're out in the sun more. So it seems like sometimes they're bedded more for a wind advantage, which is what I'm more used to, like back home around Michigan, uh, monitoring, you know, pressure, monitoring their backside and, and, and setting up, you know, facing downwind. But I don't always see that in open country. And I've often will see deer just kind of moving around to like shady spots if it's like maybe a real sunny day or unseasonably warm. Have you guys seen that same kind of thing? Jared, you probably have a lot of experiences because you get to observe so many bucks bedded. Yeah. Um, you know, I, here's what I find is when I'm hunting, a, you know, big bucks, early season, late season, I'll find them using, you know, bedding a lot. They're a lot sharper with how they bed with that wind, at least. And, and what I'm saying is mature bucks, you know, so four plus, we'll just say, okay. So semi-mature to mature level. Those deer are sharp. They're on another level from, from those younger two, two year old bucks and even the threes to where they get, yeah. I mean, they don't like it. The wind switches a little bit and, and they'll get up and rebed 30 yards to accommodate it. They're, they're just, on a different level now during the rut there's so many times i we sneak up on big bucks that they aren't looking where the you know the where the you know the the general rule of thumb is okay they're looking where they can't smell i i find that not to be the case nearly as much during the rut um but also if their bats are grouped up that changes too so you got two three bucks with this you know big buck if it, usually they're playing it pretty smart. Like this one's got this covered for visual. This one, he's, he can, he's got it covered for, it's fun to watch him in, in these types of situations. And, and we had a pretty good situation where we were able to document some of that a couple of years ago, pretty well um, with a big one that I was chasing. But, uh, but yeah, you know, a lot of times when I'm putting a sneak on them, I'm still just kind of cheating that wind, you know, just off of their, their nose that seems to be the route that i'd say gets picked over any other you know it's not that often that we can come in straight downwind on a big buck even even during the rut but i i do see where um it's not like hey he beds down and he's looking where he or you know he he, he he's not looking where he can smell or can't smell it's not like that's like a rare thing for me to see during the rut um that's pretty common so I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Eddie, have you, have you been able to observe that much? I'm pretty much right in line with that. Early season, late season is totally different ball game. They're on a survival, you know, pattern, and they don't compromise much there. During the rut, it's more or less a crap shoot, and all invariables he mentioned plays into how, they're, how it's going to play out. I think it's just a roll of the dice in the rut. and. Uh, to me, what I'd say is if 
you know, which to me, that's most of the time when somebody's going to be trying to get up on a buck on the ground, it's probably during the rut, I would think. I don't, I mean, I don't know how much everyone that hunts them on the ground goes out and hunts them in October and in December. I'm sure they do, but their success has got to be mainly in that month of November when the cards turn their way a little bit better and the bucks show their weaknesses. But, you know, I, I have to play the wind pretty bad. Even out in the prairie, I still am cognizant of it nonstop because I'm trying to stay in an immobile spot. And so I always try to pick the one direction and the one spot to where it, I think it's the absolute less likely that somebody's one of them is going to get around behind me, whether he's crossing country on his own or whether he's running a doe out there. You know, the wind is just, I live and die by it. I don't worry about all the scent stuff. I did for many years. I, I run myself crazy messing with scent and burn myself out on scent elimination and finally just said, I'm going back to the old school. And if they smell me, they smell me, but I'm going to try to keep them from it. But, you know, I haven't found it to be much of a, you know, I don't hunt whitetails a whole lot in the first half of October and the last part of November, uh, December anymore. I don't do it a lot. Um, I hunt them mainly when they're breeding mid-October through late November, and so it's a crapshoot. It's a crapshoot on what they're doing on any one given day. My advice for that is this. Get your eye on the thing, whether on the ground or in the tree, and get that thing over there and get it killed. Use common sense. Uh, Do what you got to do. You know, be a man and get the job done, and if you have to strip off and walk naked backwards to it, then (laughs) (laughs) if if that's the tactic that works that day, smear mud all over yourself and get the job done. I mean, don't, don't go by all this. We have refined whitetail hunting down to a book. We've got the rules and the regulations. That's a bunch of crap. Everybody wants a, you know, a book that can tell them how to do it. Well, the, the book is get your rear end out there and do it and learn and figure it out and, it'll all work out. Oh, yeah. Man. I think you got, I think what's, what you just said, I mean, you two are a perfect example of uh, two completely different strategies, but both get it done. And I think you guys both play into your strengths. Like Eddie, you've said you you're so patient. So you're able to put in those days upon days in, in a single location and, and waiting for a, a good buck to make the mistake and come by. And Jared, admitted he's a little more impatient and it just enjoys chasing him on the ground and, he, and that's his strength so it's just so cool you know to hear two different perspectives um i'm i, I kind of want to dive into a little bit of the stock and i guess this would probably be more to jared because he does more of this but yeah um there's so many things to keep in mind um obviously uh and I, i'm hoping you could dive into a few things but like you know, from from the the camel, the lack of camel that you use, I've noticed that you you tend to pick out colors that really match that prairie grass. Um, you know, the direction of the sun, which way the animal's facing, um, even to the best time of the day to do this. So, like for me, like when I'm hunting mule deer, I often um, I'm often bedding them down, and I I have to keep all that stuff in mind. Obviously, the wind direction, which way the wind is, uh, the sun is is facing, and and uh, all that stuff. And then I like to go after them, kind of in that noon to one o'clock time frame, because it seems like they're real kind of groggy at that time. They got their head down a lot. They're a little bit sleepy. I mean, do you do you put 
uh, do you pay attention to some of those things when you're going in for a whitetail or is it like when you see them, you're going in now? You know, I used to be rammier to where it was like, we got to go, we got to go now. But more often now as I'm getting older and sometimes I get burnt on this, but I'll put on that brakes like a few years ago uh, or no, two years ago, we had a, we had a good one at bedded first, first light. I mean, within a couple of minutes of shooting light, he was bedded already. And I was like, you know what? We, we need some wind to pick up. So that's another good thing about a lot of times we'll just look at weather.com or whatever. And a lot of times, you know, your wind's going to pick up late morning and that's going to be a better time for you to, you know, have the, the noise cover that you might need to get in there close. Um, so, so that's, that's a good factor there. Plus they get settled in and comfortable. So like on this particular deer, I was like, okay, he bedded right at first light and he's going to get up on his feet and stretch his legs probably within about two hours, you know, nine, nine thirty, whatever, somewhere in there is for that particular day is what I figured. And, and I've seen a lot of deer do that. Now, sometimes you'll get lucky and they'll bed right back down there or reposition 10 steps. But I've had situations where if I got a stock and I'm going to have to lose my visual throughout this stock, I've done those before and hadn't waited for them to get settled in comfortable and they got up and repositioned. And then I had to crawl back out of there and find them back. And maybe they moved 200 yards, 300 yards, 400 yards, find them back. And usually I don't find them back until they get back on their feet, which is, you know, a good chunk into the day. And now I might not have enough time to make a stock. So I, I think exactly what you said right there. That's that's usually when I think it's the best time is right that midday. You wait for the wind to pick up. Um, and that don't always happen. Some days you don't get that wind picking up, but that's pretty common. You know, I like a day that starts out where it's not very windy at all. If it's windy up, sun up, your activity is going to be very, very low. If it's 15, 20 mile an hour plus at sun up, but it'll be a better late morning, mid morning you know, movement, not, not maybe great, but better than first light is what I've found. Um, but one thing I do want to hit on, uh, when I do get a visual on a big buck, cause you brought this up about sometimes we're just wearing <laughs> tan clothes or whatever. It's not even a camo. So we tried ghillie suits a number of years ago. The problem with ghillie suits in the sun, the open country is unless you're laying flat on the ground, they get really dark on the backside where the sun you know, can't get to. And then all the bunches of material, if the sun's hitting them on a cross, you know, like crossways, you got these bunches of material and you basically have a valley. So you have a shadow. So they get real dark on the opposite side. So I don't like ghillie suits for, for that reason. I picked up, I pick up, I'm fortunate enough to pick up a lot of our mistakes in video, you know, mm -hmm. when I'm editing. Um, but when I get a visual on a big buck and I bet him most of the time I can pull this off. Not every time, but I'm going to plan my route, obviously, based off of wind direction being one and, and, and then other factors beyond, you know, after that. But I'm going to try to come straight in. You know, I'm not going to, you know, and I used to do this in the woods, too. Like, even if I didn't have a visual on a big buck, I'd try to picture where I think they're going to be bedding and approach that bedding area where I'm coming straight at it because you got so many shadows and highlights in the woods. I know we're talking more open country here, but I do the same thing in the open country. If I'm coming straight at a deer, there's a lot less movement than me coming in at quartering two or even broadside. So I don't, you know, I'm very careful on approaching 
a deer or a bedding pocket where I think I might be able to visually pick one up. I'm always trying to come in straight on on it because there's a lot less movement for them to pick up. I, you know, I, I've, I've realized that uh, I, I didn't realize I was doing that for a while. And it's just one of them things that I'm like, that's something I always do. And it makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, so I think it's a good point to bring up to somebody that's maybe never stalked before. Keep that in mind. Plan your route because you're coming straight in on that deer. So, sorry, Jared. Can you, I'm just not tracking when you say straight on, coming in straight in so that straight on in relation to the sun or straight in as in like you are just walking directly at where the deer is? Uh, just explain that a little bit better. I'm- All right. So, from the deer's position, you know, you know, a lot of times I'm crawling, but I'm going to crawl straight, you know, so I might have to back out and do a loop to get the wind right. But then I'm going to come straight, straight head on. I, I got gotcha. you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 I, so I follow so, you now. So, so next time you and Andy are together and just put them a hundred yards out in the woods or in the open country, if he's coming in quarter and two or broadside, that's a lot more movement than straight on. Yeah. I know it sounds silly, but a lot of people don't, I think factor that in. And, and, uh, obviously when you're sneaking, the other thing is, is I don't, like to take my eyes off them when I'm moving because the second I do that, they're going to pop their head up at some point and I got to be all freeze in that moment. And if I'm looking at where my, I'm going to plant my feet or whatever while I'm moving, then I look up and they got me. So, um, you got, uh, that's one thing I can look at where I'm going to go. Like, okay, I got to move my leg like this, but I don't do that movement until I'm back looking at the deer. So if he, picks his head up and and looks my direction, I can instantly freeze. And if I didn't do that, I, I would get pegged a lot more, substantially more. Hmm. So it's minor little or major detail, but yeah. <laughs> Jared, uh, real quick. Uh, do you ideally is, would you rather come at that deer kind of from the side? Um, like, so you, you got a deer, let's say he's, he's bedded on a, just on the down or on the backside of a, a little hillside, you know, with the wind coming over the hill and he's kind of yeah. facing down. Are you going to try to come in more from the side and slightly above, or it seems like a lot of times you end up like literally like right over top of their back. So what, yeah. what ideally, what do you try to do? You know, that's the one thing. Every situation is different. You know, um, if I can cross one, kill them, that's the way I like to generally do it. And I think the reason I just like to do it that way is because uh, generally I can't come in directly downwind and the crosswind's the best I got. And some, you know, you got to really watch that wind though, because I mean, I, I missed out on a big one this year. I had a great wind for a while and I was making a play on them and I was in compound range, but all of a sudden I felt it on the back of my neck. It switched for 20, 30 seconds and he got me. Um, so uh, that happens from time to time. But it was really our only route. We only had an eight mile an hour wind. Um, we had <laughs> just 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 the right setting to be able to pull this off with this situation. And unfortunately, that wind just kind of switched on me. But a lot of times, I'll I find that crosswind coming in on him crosswind is going to be the best route. Um, you know, I. I you know, in recent years, I've found myself coming over the top a little bit more than I used to. Um, I don't like to do it generally when I'm trying to actually 
when, when I'm moving in on the deer, I don't like to do it as much. Um, it's just hard to film. It's really hard to film that you're coming over the top skyline. Skyline's already a, a, a tough deal, but uh, when I'm like going into a draw, let's say I'm hunting open country and it's kind of got some broken draws and maybe I think there could be a big buck bedded down in this draw or this ditch. I find myself, I, I realized this last year, over the last couple, three years, a lot of times I am coming over skyline. So, um, which isn't probably the way most guys should start out. Um, but I think I just, over the course of time, I kind of developed a system to how I scan this, the, the, the open country, the draw system or whatever, to where I'm very confident about doing it, where I'm going to have them spotted before they get me. Um, but the reason I, I like doing it that way is because oftentimes I, uh, in a, I'm in a lot better position to actually spot them. And I think a great example of that is actually the newest video we have out. There's a bonus disc in there and there was a big buck that I was chasing and I, I had seven stocks in seven days, six were with him and almost all those, I think actually all those situations we had to come over the top. To, to move in on him, but also to get the visual. We didn't have, he was a deer that was bedded down at first light a lot of times. You know, he was a smart deer. It wasn't rut yet. And and uh, we didn't get busted ever doing that over the top, but um, that's a fine line there. But I love doing that because usually I got a higher position to get a visual on them. So it's easy for me. And that, that particular system, you know, sometimes there'd be three, four, five different bucks in that, maybe a couple does here. And I got to know where all these deer are at. And if I'm coming like on a draw system, if I'm halfway down, yeah, I'm not skylined anymore. But now I might be missing a deer or two that is going to really screw me if I don't have their position. So if you can get good at spotting them first in a skyline type scenario where you're coming over a ridge, you, that's one thing that I think... Uh, I realized over the last couple, three years, I started doing more of, and um, I don't know how to describe that other than uh, I used to see more tails going the other way. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think I just, I do a really good job scanning the pockets where they might be betting. And then I'm confident of that, that I've scanned that good enough that I don't go back there. And I focus, you know, when I move up a few more inches, now I just focus on this little sliver that I couldn't see before and kind of eliminate the, if that kind of makes sense. When you're coming over the top, you're really threading the needle on the wind. If obviously if they're bedded with the wind to their advantage, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Some of those situations. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'm coming over skyline and I have the wind working for me, but, but that, that's a good point, you know, and that's, that's one thing in the open country when you're talking, not the flat ground, you know, flat Kansas prairies that we've hunted and Eddie's hunted a lot, you know, then you go to kind of like that more, it sounds like you guys had a hunt here a couple of years ago where it was probably more like draws, open country kind of stuff. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is yep. fun. You know, one thing that I realized by sitting back in glass and it's really fun to look at what the wind's going to be like, how much wind are we getting today? And then be able to just set yourself up to be like, okay, all these deer are going to be betting on this side, uh, these types of draws, these types of ridges. And it gets pretty fun to be able to predict where they're, I'm actually going to take all that knowledge that I learned and I'm planning to do more wooded stuff like I used to do again, because I can't wait to take what I've learned by watching them in that type of setting and how they use wind 
and and you know I'll be able to eliminate a lot of acreage on a wooded set. You know, if there's a 15 mile plus hour wind in the woods, I'll be able to eliminate a lot of that acreage that I didn't 10 years ago when I hunted woods. I didn't really do that as 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 much. So just know? just so people can follow along at home, how would you how would you apply that to the wooded setting? So when you're getting that strong 15 hour 15 mile an hour wind, where's that going to push the bedding? Okay. So if I'm hunting ridge type stuff, like say like the bluffs of Wisconsin or, you know, a lot of those types of rig, not all hills are like this, but a lot of that type of hill terrain, those, you know, the bigger bucks are bedded right over the top of that ridge quite often. But, you know, there's different hill systems where that's not true, but that type of setting. Now I would just take a look at the top. Okay. we got a 15 mile per hour plus wind today they're not going to be bedded you know in these types of settings they're going to be out of that wind catching it coming over the top and i could just go into a, a wooded scenario and eliminate more of that acreage based off of kind of what you you described you know okay the wind's out of the west you know there's a draw you know they're catching that scent coming over the top just a little bit and they're out of the wind so it's not you know it's it's nice and quiet you know where they don't have a bunch of noise going on around them um, deer don't like that. The only deer that I've seen get comfortable with that is those flat plains like Kansas deer. They just got to get used to it. You know, sometimes they can find a ditch like we were talking about earlier to crawl into, but, and Eddie, he, you can probably expand some more on some of that. Well, I haven't been, I don't know why I spent my whole life stalking, but not whitetails a lot. I spent, you know, mule deer, elk, antelope, uh, whatever. And I don't know what I do compared to the think, thinking process of everyone else, but like if I'm on the ground after something, I guess I would say the very first thing my mind assesses is the lay of the land to where my first thought is, how can I get the absolute closest to this animal using the lay of the land before I even have to start thinking about the next step, which might be the wind or the sun angle or the cover, or whether I can, you know, am I going to have, I, I will, try, like, if I spot it at 500 yards, I want to, if I can get to 200 yards real quick by using the lay of the land, that's step one for me, you know. Now, of course, I'm not going to run into that animal. It goes without saying, I don't even say this. Anybody with a brain knows you don't run in there and let them smell you, you know what I mean? But using the wind, you're going to run in there and get as close as you can using the terrain, and then stop crawl up there look at the scenario and assess how to do it whether you're going to crawl in on a side hill or come over a skyline right behind them it'll all depend on where they're bedded in the cover and the wind you know the last part is the wind and the cover equation of a stock to me the first part is the lay of the land because unless it's wide open pull table flat there's always usually some kind of hill or some kind of a swag you can use to cut your distance in half you know but anyway, I don't know if that was exactly what you asked me, but that's what I went on a tangent on. No, that's 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 <laughs> know, good that's stuff. A great one. <laughs> that that last moment though, so you you use the land to your to your favor. Um, Jared described uh-huh. a little bit of what he's thinking about as he makes those final approaches. Can you give right. us a few more thoughts for your final approach once you do have to think about the wind, the sun, um, crawling yeah. versus sneaking? Um, any other yeah. tips from your experience stalking in, on mule deer and whatnot? Yeah, you know, I get as close as I can with the land. Then I, of course, 
like I said, I've already got an idea what the wind prevailing is. And I will I will use the land in conjunction with the wind from the start to get around on some side of that animal that's as close as I can get to where I'm going to have the wind that where when I start my final stalk, I know I've got the wind at least usable. I don't want to get as close as I can to the animal, you know, and then end up with the wind not favorable to make the final part of the stalk. So you got to put them both in conjunction, but the lay of the land is the first part. When I get close, you know, then I'll stop for quite a bit of time and really watch like he does and look at the surroundings, pick them apart because, you know, you don't know what's laying there. There might be three or four of them you haven't seen. There may be some more over there 400 yards away in a bowl across the prairie that, you know, are going to stand up. I've had, I don't know how many times I've been stalking a particular animal and it get up and run off because another deer stood up over there 400 yards away and flagged, you know. So, you know, you got to get close as you can to begin with and then assess the situation. And then I'm just a firm advocate of all my stalking. I do pretty much, it's not all, but it's if I can, I'm going to do it on my knees and elbows. I, you know, if I'm a stalking hunt type guy, like antelope or whatever, elk, anything, I'm keep as low profile as I can get. I'm going to belly crawl. I mean, the shadow you're throwing is significantly less and you know if you've ever watched a cow walk across the pasture in the early morning or late evening the thing's throwing an eight foot shadow maybe that's moving along with it you yeah. know get as low as you can you know get down there where there's no more for them to spot moving than your physical body you know and and really really important really important to me is the part about he mentioned earlier about keeping your eyes on them I, I just absolutely don't move on an animal hardly if I'm in the final stages in the open. I won't move unless I'm watching that thing and knowing that he hasn't tuned into something and that he's not alert and that he's not gawking right my direction at the moment. I watch their you don't basically don't move if you can't see them good enough to tell what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Wise, wise words. Oh, yeah. man. I got a question on that. Uh, and I know this is going to depend completely on the situation, but which do you guys prefer? So like, uh, you sneak into a whitetail mule deer, whatever, and he's bedded. Um, do you prefer to shoot them bedded down or is it something where you sneak into bow distance, kind of wait for him to stand up? and and give you that shot i was i the reason i ask is because i was forced with this decision uh in nebraska this year on a giant muley and um i could have shot him in his bed i i was over him i came from over the top like you were describing jared and he was 20 i don't know 22 23 yards or something but i had a, a great shot he was facing directly away from me but I don't know, just the way that the way the hill was was kind of tapered down and, and what I could see of his of his body. I just didn't feel super confident with it. So I just kind of sat there and waited, which was risky because, uh, you know, that wind could have swirled at any time. But I just kind of let him do his thing and, and start. You know, you could tell he was starting to move around a little bit, move his head around. So I knew he was going to stand. And then, you know, after, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, he stood and then gave me a shot. But 
what do you guys typically do? I, I know it's it's completely situational, but Jared, I well, I think you made the right call. If you don't, if if something doesn't feel right, or you're not confident about that shot, you don't take it. Um, you know, a few years ago, Chancey snuck up on a big buck, bedded in the plains of Kansas in the grass, and that was uh, after Thanksgiving. Um, but he snuck up there. I think he got six or seven yards from it, and it was a big old one. Um, and he shot it bedded. And uh, I think that's the first bedded deer that we ever had on a video that we shot. And, you know, I, I just wasn't really a big fan of it ever, but he brought up a good valid point. And he said, you know how many times they, they stand up and they have us pegged and now you're dealing with a deer that's just on pins and needles and might get 10 inches of drop on you. There's a lot of variables in there. And I think if you have a good shot on a bedded deer, I don't think there's anything, you know, wrong with that. I don't think I've ever taken that shot, but I'm a lot more open-minded to it than I was because he had a lot of good points on that. I was like, yeah, uh, you know, eh, that's that's a good point, you know, I thought. So, um, I mean, my favorite shot is a head-on shot, but I'm hunting deer on the ground, not out of a tree stand, and that's a whole different ball game. Um, and the first time I did it, it was an accident and I realized how deadly it really is from ground zero. And so my favorite is a head on shot, then quartering two, then broadside. But a lot of people wouldn't probably agree with that, but, uh, about everyone I've ever seen lost is a broadside. So, uh, if you're shooting a good setup, that's what I like, um, on that. And so many times on the ground that happens, a head on or a quarter two, um, we find that to be pretty common. Um, so I know I kind of got sidetracked there, but no, that's good. But the, but you said it, and I, I guess I kind of want to stress that to the listeners, a, a good setup is key. Oh yeah. And a heavy, heavy arrow, a good penetrating broadhead. Right. So what yeah. do you, what do you, you, you use something pretty darn heavy, don't you? I do. I actually just got a grain scale the other day. I was like, God, I've needed one of these for a while. I knew I was up there in the seven hundreds, but I weighed, weighed it and I got 808 and then uh I realized I had a lighted knock on there so I'm a little bit under 800 on my heavy heaviest setup um and I'm shooting a two blade head which I have my theories on that it's a cut on contact but um I look at a two blade cut on contact head like it's really a one blade head because when you got a split bone you're only splitting it one direction versus a three blade you actually have to break the bone three different directions um, you know, which I'm all about least to, you know, getting through bone as easy as I can to get you breaking bone, never, never kills, kills a deer. So you got to get through it. And, uh, so I'm not afraid, you know, I've shot, you know, a, a handful on that quarter and two or head on with, with the longbow, and I've never had a penetration issue. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's what I shoot. Okay. Eddie, how about you? Uh, I know you haven't stalked a lot of whitetails, but even, you know, even I think hearing some mule deer stories can even be helpful for guys that yeah. maybe going to hunt uh, open country for whitetails. But are you shooting them more bedded or are you kind of situational? Well, I've shot a few bedded, a couple over the years, and I can't tell you up front that I ever felt comfortable maybe with that because it's just a much more compact uh, target that. I feel a little less comfortable getting through the thing because you never, you just never end up rarely 
shooting them in their beds or you're around on the belly side facing you, you know, the sides you can get through the easiest. You're usually trying to shoot through their back or down off of a rise above them or something. And you, you just have a lot of bone structure, but I've shot them that way and, and managed to kill them real well. Um, I've had a wound or two over it. I, I won't hide that, but you know, the biggest dilemma why I, I hate stalking is because I can get right up there to them a lot of times and then not get the bow shot accomplished because, you know, trying to get the bow shot accomplished without them being on to you and running off or jumping up and spinning around and, you know, facing you, which, you know, I have a mental block. I have a literal mental block about shooting a deer facing me. I, back in my early elk hunting career, I tried that a few times. Of course, now it was elk, and it's a different ball game. I didn't get through their front structure well. I can, I have a literal brain dead spot up there that will not function in the heat of the moment. That tells me to shoot them in the base of the throat. I have more of a tendency, like an idiot, to try to shoot them in the chest. And it, you know, trying to get through that sternum is ridiculous. But I, I, I have a problem getting them shot, you know, on their feet. Uh, without them jumping up and running out there and looking back at me broadside at 40 or 50 yards. And then I'm into what I call a hope shot then, and I just end up don't even taking the shot because I don't feel comfortable with it. I haven't had time to range it when it stopped usually, and I'm not flinging an arrow at it. So, you know, that's the biggest problem I've had with my stalking is just getting the thing. I, I can often stalk up to an animal and feel like I should have killed it, absolutely should have killed it. And it gets away from me because I'm just too cautious, I guess, with my shots or something. But I haven't done it on the extent, you know, that some of you guys have maybe to where I've got comfortable with uh, shooting them at some odd angles and stuff. I'm, I'm old school. I'm kind of a, a sissy about, you know, I need them where I know that I have a straight path into their vitals without a massive bone structure in the way. And uh, if I was going to shoot them like that a lot, I would definitely go up to that super heavy arrow and get as much kinetic energy and have it, you know, a good stout built two blade cut on tip type broadhead, like you described that that's good sense right there. So we have kept you guys for quite a long time. So I, I think we got to wrap this one up, even though I know that both Andy and I have a lot more we would love to talk about, but, but maybe one last question from both of us. Um, if you guys are okay with that. Um, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll drop one here, and then Andy, I'll let you close us out. Right. You both mentioned using decoys in one way or another, but we haven't really gone into the details of it. And you hear a lot about you know how effective decoys can be in that open country environment because it's it's all you know it's a sight game in in so many different ways in these open environments. So I just would be curious to hear from both of you on exactly how you how you would use one. I know that. Uh, Eddie, you mentioned that you use one less than you used to, that now you don't. But I still would like to hear, you know, what the ideal decoy setup would be for you. You know, how far away you put it, what angle you set it up at, when you would use it, etc. And then on the flip side, when I get to you, Jared, um, I know you started using one maybe like 10 years ago. And you've been using these, you know, self-made decoys that you walk up, you know, behind and I'm curious how your use of them has evolved because we talked maybe five years ago on the podcast last time about it, and you were talking about you know how you were figuring that out and getting aggressive with it and and kind of the crazy dicey nature of 
sneaking up on a deer on the ground, holding a decoy out in front of you, and then getting these bucks to want to come in right at you. Um, so when I get to you, what I'm most curious about is how your use has changed over the past couple of years, if at all. But uh, let's start with Eddie. Can you can you run me through your decoy setup when you do use one and, and best practices? Well, you finally pinned me in a corner. I may disappoint you with this one, but I can't help it. I got to tell the truth. Honestly, I don't really feel qualified to really give out advice on decoying because I, I don't feel like I know enough about it. Um, I would be at infancy stages there, so I probably need advice instead of giving it. <laughs> okay. um, my, my experience with it uh, out in the open country, it's absolutely, there's times when it has performed miracles, and I have never done it enough to refine down my opinion on what is the best way to do it. I have stuck up a doe decoy before by itself. I like it high. I don't want it bedded. I want them up where, like if I crack horns at one a quarter mile away, I want them to be able to turn and look and see a deer over there, you know. And I've used small bucks, and I've used the two together. I've had all kinds of reactions, everything from A to Z. I've had does get really seriously irate at doe decoys and spit and hiss and kick and run off. And, you know, and I've had bucks, young bucks, come into them real good old bucks come in i've had them uh i've had you know bucks that literally seemed repulsed by another buck decoy they're timid some bucks have personality some of them are extremely aggressive even when they're young i've seen young bucks that went around trying to run everybody in the whole place off and i've seen old bucks that wouldn't fight for nothing and anybody that wanted to mess with them they just turned and got away from them so i think a lot of it more has to do with the the deer and the scenario and the time of the day, you know, the time of the uh, season. As far as me telling you an excellent deer decoy setup and how to use it, I got to deflect on that one. I just don't feel like that's my wheelhouse. You know what I mean? Hey, that's that's fair enough. We, we appreciate that honesty. What uh, sure. What about you, Jared? Do you want to kind of update us on where you stand on the use of decoys while hunting on the ground and what? what you're doing these days? Yeah. You know, um, as far as the decoy, I treat it kind of like we talked earlier. It's, it's, it's a tool. It's, it's not gonna, um, it's not going to be something I go to every time. In fact, I go to it less now than I, I used to, you know, um, what you were talking about there is how we were using a lot of that decoy you know, in the early years, that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. 10 years ago when we, uh, and we kind of developed that one or built that, that homemade one. I, I wouldn't manufacture them cause there's some dangers involved <laughs> here with it, but a couple. Um, but anyways, uh, my ideal situation is if I got a big buck, he's locked down with a doe. If I can't sneak in on him and close that, that, that distance, um, to make that shot a great way is to crawl in there with that decoy without him knowing. And then when he's looking the other way, you got to break that perimeter zone though. And that's a very fine line. Like, um, what I mean by that is there's a certain point where another buck gets close enough to this mature buck and his doe that he's going to run it, run that other buck off. And every deer has its, own threshold just like eddie was saying they all have their own attitude and personalities and some i could pop that decoy up at 60 70 80 yards and they'll come they'll leave their dough 
to come over and, and cause, you know, run me off. Um, and I'll be right behind that decoy if that's what I'm going to, going to do there. But other bucks, uh, you might need to get to 30, 40 yards. Well, for a lot of compound shooters, you're in range there. Um, for me, that's kind of pushing it on what, where I feel comfortable shooting longbow wise. Um, so that's how I like to use it. Now, Chancey's been using it a lot when he calls. So he'll go into places, you know, um, to do rattle sets. He loves to do that, you know, late pre-rut, pre-rut, late pre-rut, and then post-rut. He loves to do that. And he loves to set that decoy in a spot that's kind of tucked in to where if they come in, they'll they'll catch it, but it's kind of blended in, you know, and, and he loves doing that because it gives that deer, I mean, we're set up on the ground. We're very um, not concealed, I guess you would call it. And uh, you know, the, the camera is pretty big that we use. So you got two guys there set up on the ground. So Chansey really likes it. You know, if you're a solo hunter, I think Eddie brought up some great points about how, you know, it, it's worked magic and it's also drawn a lot of attention in a negative way too. So, um, but as people can see, or have seen in the videos, he, he does it for calling a lot and has had some pretty good success doing that. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I say you just got to be careful if you're going to set up behind that decoy, like what I'm talking about. Um, you got to be looking for other hunters. Uh, you don't want to get shot, and that's kind of a dangerous. So I don't really <laughs> uh, advocate it too much. Um, and, and you definitely don't want to use one during gun season, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you're already hunting public lands, and, and uh I've already heard one horror story where it could have been a lot worse, but, uh, you know, it was during the bow season, but some, uh, young fellas that had been drinking or something and, uh, fired a gun, thought it was a big buck. And, uh, luckily they missed, it wasn't me, but it was somebody that I ran into in the can plains of Kansas that, uh, could have been a bad deal. So I always, if I see a vehicle coming up the road and I got the decoy out, and the big, if I can do this, I'll pull that decoy down. I don't even want that other guy to know I'm what's going on or, I mean, that's just kind of how I am anyway. But, um, you know, and, and then too, it's, it's a, it's a rush when you got a big buck inside of 10 yards coming to charge you. It's a rush, but don't kid yourself. There's nothing safe about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd <laughs> say know? so. Man. So, uh, a couple things to think about. I think it's, if we're going to talk about that kind of decoy and it's, wise to just you know under think about things in that in those two departments you yeah know? yeah very very important uh thank you for for bringing that up for sure okay so so there's our decoying uh ideas whether from a tree stand or on the ground uh andy how do you want to wrap things up here man you know what these guys have uh they've pretty much answered everything that i had down i just uh i guess i just want to end it with telling them thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Two guys that I really admire, look up to, and uh, I thought it was really cool to hear the two different perspectives from two guys that are beyond successful, consistently successful in this type of country. So just thanks again, guys, for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys for having us. I, I mean, I think... I've, I've, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you much. Uh, I'm glad to be in the Brotherhood. 
It's a great group. Well, uh, right back at you guys. I, I'll second what Andy said. This has been a lot of fun. I know we all learned something, and everyone listening for sure too. And the and the biggest thing is that now I am just chomping at the bit ridiculously to schedule my own uh, open country hunts this year and, and definitely make sure I'm back out there because, uh, man, just, just thinking about these scenarios and thinking about that swaying grass and the big blue skies overhead and, and looking off in the distance and seeing tines coming through the grass, I, you just, I don't know, it gets like the hair standing up on my arms and I'm just ready to do it. So uh, thank you guys for inspiring that feeling in me right now. Absolutely. Yes, That's what it's all about. It is. All right. Let's wrap this one up. And that's a wrap. I enjoy this a lot. I hope you did too. If you want more from these guys, I would suggest going and picking up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine where you can read some articles from Eddie or head on over and follow Whitetail Adrenaline on their Facebook page or check out their website where you can pick up uh, Jared's most recent DVDs. They're a lot of fun. You get to see some of the things he just talked about, and it's it's just as crazy as it sounds. So go out, support those guys, and try adding some of this stuff to your repertoire. Um Trying new things is one of my absolute favorite parts of deer hunting. I constantly want to learn more. I constantly want to grow and evolve. And I think that there are ample opportunities for us to take some ideas here in our open country discussion and do just that. So thank you again for your attention. Thanks for your time. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.